Lord our God, we are in desperate need of you always. Uh, thank you for your, your word, your law, your statutes, your rules, your teachings. Um, it's perfection. Uh, may we always be confident in you and in Christ and uh, humbly not confident in ourselves. Help us as we, we think through your word today. Amen. Uh, by nature, I'm a very passionate, dogmatic person. The whole uh, coffee obsession thing is not an outlier. Uh, it makes sense for passion and dogmaticness to go together because passion loves the certainty of dogmatism. Passion loves the certainty of absolute correctness. It's desperate for that. I remember as a teenager becoming really interested in God's word by his grace and then desiring to serve him vocationally. Uh, so this first started as a desire to serve internationally as a missionary. Uh, there were churches all over America anyway, uh, so what was the point of adding to that? Uh, I, I wanted to do missions, and in fact, everybody should do missions. Uh, passion, 100% certainty, full steam ahead, no looking back, right? Uh, that is until I ran full steam into a brick wall, metaphorically speaking. Uh, that brick wall came during one of the few sermons that I can vividly remember from high school, uh, not because I fell asleep through most of the other ones, although I did, uh, but just because, you know, certain sermons stick out, right? Hopefully some of mine serve in that way, but that's God, not me. Uh, the preacher was in James somewhere, I don't remember where, because ironically, my eyes fell on a different passage across the Bible from where he was preaching, uh, and it was in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. James writes this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city or a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Uh, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And from that text, something that God was already working in me, uh, I felt convicted that international missions was something that I wanted to do, uh, but it was not necessarily what God wanted me to do. And so that night I surrendered, right, agreed with God about how I felt he was leading me, surrendered to what I thought God wanted me to do, which was to train for an itinerant preaching ministry as an evangelist or uh, more accurately, some kind of like a revivalist. Uh, but let's go, right? Passion. Uh, maybe at like 98% certainty this time, you know, head still spinning from that whole brick wall. Pursuing that type of vocational ministry led me to the college that I attended. Uh, and there I shifted once again, this time in my junior year, from pursuing an itinerant preaching ministry to pursuing church planting. Still passionate, but probably more like a 90% certainty at this point. And that led me to the seminary that I attended and a recognition that I felt led to pastor, but I didn't really have the gifts necessary that's thought of typically for church planting. It seemed more like a cautious 75% certainty now. Uh, after graduation from seminary, I interviewed at a few churches who were looking for a pastor, uh, but there was only one of the few that were willing to talk to me only one that truly seemed like a perfect fit, and that church voted not to call me as their pastor. And that slowed me, it slowed us down considerably, with a certainty level of about 55%, maybe, 
Uh, Because at this point, I had a master's degree, a wife, two kids with a third on the way, and no pastoral experience and no prospects. What was I supposed to do? Less than a year after that vote, we moved to West Virginia to become part of Randolph Street, to just keep learning and growing and just serve however we could, whenever and wherever we could. Uh, Interestingly, they had a need for musicians to help with the launch of their Valley Campus, so Leanne and I agreed to join that team to serve in that capacity. And as some of you may recall, that music ministry led to a part-time campus pastor role, which has since led me to serve as your pastor here at Risen King. And now, most of the time, I'm about 37.6% certain that I'm the right guy for the job. Uh, But as Gerald once told Fred, and Fred then told me, I may not be the right guy for the job, but I'll do until he gets here. (laughs) Wisdom. I share this. I share this story uh, because as the Lord continues to lead me along the path that he has for me, uh, he has been changing me and softening me and humbling me and adjusting my expectations for absolute dogmatic certainty. And much more of this humbling, God's humbling in me is needed, but I trust that he who began this good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so if you think, Peter, you're, you're passionate and hard and proud now, yeah, but imagine what I was like. As God's grace has been at work in me. These vocational changes are just one big chunk of the story of God's work in me. And maybe part of my story resonates with part of your own story, uh, but perhaps that vocational ministry elements make it seem like our stories are very different. Uh, either way, there's another large chunk of the story that I think mirrors that, the story of God's work in me that's also been a journey of evaluating the certainty of my theological assumptions. Okay? Evaluating that passionate, dogmatic certainty of my theological assumptions. In high school, along with that desire to serve vocationally, I also became enamored with certain preachers, uh, other revivalists, one in particular, and, and whom I desired, desired to emulate. Uh, and from them, I first heard that the King James Bible was the best or only faithful English translation. And since they were the first I heard really speak passionately on the subject, I believed them, and I accepted that as true. I believed passionately, that faithfulness to the word of God required English-speaking people to read the King James Version of the Bible, and really only the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 18.17 now comes to mind in relation to this. The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. In college, I had a wonderful, loving pastor who patiently taught our church about how we got our English Bibles. And through this study, he frequently confronted the idea of the supremacy of the King James. And I remember being very angry with him, passionately, confidently, certainly angry with him every Sunday. Uh, Almost left our church over this issue. My sister and I attended, we'd been part of this as a plant, and then a new pastor had been brought in, and I felt like maybe I should leave. But through his teaching, his patience, oh, Praise God for his patience. Through his patient teaching and questions in one conversation that changed my life, uh, I began to question my theological assumption 
that the King James Version was the best translation in English until I eventually rejected that assumption. And since then, over the course of the years that followed, I have greatly grown in my understanding of the languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, also translation philosophy, and in my understanding of uh, manuscript evidence uh, from which our Bibles are drawn. A subject for another time. Uh, I know enough to know that I'm not an expert, but I hear people who know less talk as if they are experts, right? And when you grow in a field, I think you know what I'm talking about with that. But at every stage of those studies, what does the original text say? How do we get the original text? How are we supposed to understand from one language to another language and growing in my understanding of those things? At every stage of those studies, any notion of King James supremacy has fallen by the wayside in my mind. But my confidence in the fact that the Bibles we hold in our hands whatever translation it is that you're holding, are, without a shadow of a doubt, God's word. And my confidence in that, and this is God's word, and whatever version you're holding, it is God's word, that confidence has skyrocketed. But I rejected the assumption that I started off with of this King James-only idea. Those same preachers in high school also were the first to introduce me to the terrible, terrible theological error of something called Calvinism. And I didn't really know what it was at the time, but I knew it was the worst thing to ever plague Christianity. That is, until I sat through a class in college that actually explained what Arminians and Calvinists believe the Bible taught. Novel idea. And then another of my deeply held theological assumptions was flipped on its head. Uh, Another life-changing conversation that I can remember the who and the where and the when. Uh, Having considered both sides for myself from God's word, I came to believe that a Calvinist understanding of salvation was what the Bible taught. I could talk about the theological assumption of my upbringing and college and seminary training that baptism is by immersion and for believers only, which the more I study, the more I strongly believe and accept as true. Maybe you're breathing a sigh of relief. I also grew up with the theological assumption that Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead on the third day. And I not only continue to accept the truths of these statements, I have staked my eternal fate on the truth of those statements. And I hope I believe it more and more every day until I see Jesus and into eternity. Because just because something is the first theological position that you ever heard, it doesn't make it right. But just because it's the first that you heard also doesn't make it automatically wrong. Alongside of that, the newest theological position on the block is neither automatically correct nor automatically incorrect. Because novelty, newness of a theology, is a very subjective term. The reformers were charged with theological novelty, but it wasn't. It was a return to biblical fidelity, right? To biblical faithfulness. We must be willing to humbly question our theological assumptions and long-held interpretations. We all must be willing to humbly question our theological assumptions and long-held interpretations because there is a difference between believing that God's word is always correct and believing that our understanding of God's word is always correct. Can you hear that clearly? There is a difference between believing 
that God in his word is always correct and believing that our understanding of God's word is always correct. But that passionate, dogmatic certainty and absoluteness is focused on me. It's not focused on him. On the one hand, then, beware the notion that faith requires the certainty of dogmatic interpretations on every issue and every passage. Beware the notion that faith requires that level of absolute certainty on an interpretation of a passage or in a theological position. On the, uh, because I believe that's where this King James-only-ism comes from. It definitely did not come from the King James translators. They were patently not King James-only. Read the preface. Another day. But they believe this. This is my trying to understand what I was thinking and why, and why so many people are so passionate about that particular issue. I think it's this. The, the notion that if the Bible is God's word, down to its very words, which is true, then we must be absolutely certain that we know exactly what those words are in our own language. And that is not true. Right? It is inspired and without error to the very words, the dotting of the I, the crossing of the T, even though it wasn't, there weren't I's or T's because it's a different language. Yodes and tittles and all those things we could talk about. Hebrew things. Uh, yes. Okay. So we must have that same absoluteness when it comes from bringing something out of one language into another language. There's only one way that can be done. No. That is absolutely not how translation works in any context, including God's word. It's just not. Study any other language, you know, right? Latin, German, uh, I never remember, bum, Buganda, Luganda, I can never, Lu? I can have so many different consonants at the beginning of that, I can never remember. Uh, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, Chinese, I don't care what the language is. It is not a one-to-one -one equivalent, and it's not a translation with certainty. And so, but, so certainty in God's word, yes. Certainty in one translation, our language, absolutely not. That is not true. It's just not how language works. It's not how language works in God's word either. Uh, another thing. On the other hand, so that's the certainty of dogmatic absolute interpretations. Beware. That's not what faith requires. But the other hand, right? It's not, there's always two dishes. <laughs> always something on the other hand. Beware the notion that faith requires no certainty. And God's word provides us with no truth and no clear answers. That's also not true. It's not like we can't, it's like, we can't know absolutely everything with absolute certainty. It's like, I believe that. But it's also like, oh, so we just can't know anything. And there's no point in studying and there's no point in digging and there's no point in synthesizing because we can never really know. That's not true. That's not how God's word treats itself. But there are errors on both sides. All of this talk is relevant to our study of Genesis. You're probably like, what is he talking about? I didn't forget we were in Genesis. We are. Because all of this talk is relevant to our study of Genesis because of another theological assumption that I grew up believing. That Genesis 1 teaches a recent creation in 144 hours or six 24-hour days. And this is often called the young earth creation position. And alongside of that teaching often comes a choice like this. Do you believe in the Bible or do you believe in evolution? That's the question that's often put in front of people. And I question the legitimacy of that question. And I want to explain why. 
Many of you have studied logical fallacies, and one type of fallacy is called the either-or fallacy. And here are some examples. Did you eat your soup, or do you hate your mom and her cooking? Maybe we've heard this in the last few years. Do you support Black Lives Matter, or are you a racist? Hmm. Do you homeschool, or do you hate your children? Do you play disc golf, or do you prefer real sports? And perhaps you can see that hidden in each of these questions is a personal attack. Right? The phrasing of the question is, a, is an insult is an attack forcing into a position and defining something rather than actually asking. So what about the following? Do you believe in an old earth or do you believe in the Bible? Or do you believe in a young earth or are you an atheistic, science-worshipping, Bible-hating, anti-supernatural evolutionist? Whoa. Or we could flip it. Do you believe in an old earth or are you a backward, ignorant, superstitious, science-rejecting fundamentalist? Hmm. And perhaps those examples are a bit extreme, but I'm not so sure that they are. Maybe you've said or thought something similar. Maybe you still do. Often the disagreement regarding our understanding, though, or interpretation of Genesis 1 is only reduced, is reduced to only two positions. Again, an either-or, these are the options. First, the Bible says the earth is young, so Christians must submit science to scripture regarding Genesis 1 and accept that the earth is young. Or, no, 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 no. Science says the earth is old, so Christians must submit scripture to science and reinterpret Genesis 1 and accept that the earth is old. We're often told those are the two positions. But what both of these views hold in common or have in common, is holding that, that God, through Moses in Genesis 1, is intending to give us answers to our current scientific and historical questions regarding the age of the earth. But is this the proper way to look at Genesis? Is that what God is intending to accomplish? Is this, passages, uh, this passage, is its primary purpose to answer the questions of when and how is that the primary point? Or is there another way to look at this passage? Is there actually a third option that we often haven't been put in front of us? Is it just these two? There is a third option of sorts that's been presented. It emphasizes that Genesis 1 is a theological story, not a scientific story. And I want to take some time to try to explain this. Uh, no one's allowed to leave, by the way. You have to hear me to the end of this sermon. One of the difficulties that we have when trying to understand Scripture is the huge distance between the original author and audience and us. The language and culture of a people group affect how they read or hear things, ancient peoples and modern peoples. There are differences to those type of things. I mean, go to, go to Great Britain and talk about your pants and see how it goes. <laughs> it's not what you think. That language, that culture, the people group, aspects of society, it affects assumptions and it affects styles and it affects word uses. So the first questions in regard to interpreting a passage of scripture must be, what did the original audience, and original author, excuse me, intend to communicate to the original audience? What did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? And alongside of that is the question, how did the original audience hear and read this passage? 
Those are not the final questions of interpretation, but they are the first. So when we read Genesis 1, who is the author? Moses, right? Moses wrote the Pentateuch. It speaks of it in there. It's spoken of as the law of Moses, spoken of as just Moses said. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And what do we know about Moses? Well, we read in Exodus that he was an Israelite who was raised, including his education and his training, for 40 years, maybe 37, depending on when he entered that little basket. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt. He was an Israelite raised as an Egyptian, Egyptian royalty. And I have no question that the skills that he learned were employed by God in the writing of the Pentateuch. Like 40 years of giving him training, 40 years of bringing him down to humility, 40 years of leading his people. Uh, Who was the original audience of Genesis 1? It was the Israelites. Specifically, I would say it was the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years on their way to the promised land. I often think, me, I often think of the Israelites idealistically. Want to read everything that we know about scripture and everything that we believe God wanted them to be, read that into them. When we read from Genesis into Exodus and beyond, we know the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we know that they would be fulfilled for their descendants. And we can jump over the whole they spent 400 years in Egypt thing, which we shouldn't do, right? Did you catch, like, 400 years, right? We have not been a country for 400 years, and this people group lived in another culture Right? A very powerful, thorough culture for almost four centuries. And we're supposed to expect that that had no influence on them? That's not true. I think we often assume that the Israelites were a consistently monotheistic, essentially righteous people when God called them out of Egypt. Thus, their frequent idolatry was an exception to the rule of few bad apples in a very big bushel. But I don't think that this was actually the case. What if instead a better assumption from the biblical evidence is that when God called the Israelites, they had significantly adopted the pagan idolatrous worldview of their Egyptian neighbors during their 400 years in Goshen. They were unrighteous. They were polytheistic like everyone else in the ancient Near Eastern world. I'm certain they knew something about the God of their ancestors. They had an identity as a people. Some of them even feared him, midwives and others but they were not faithful in their worship of him. If they had been, why is the big thing that Moses wants to do to take them out to go and actually worship the God of their fathers? I think there's an easy assumption that that wasn't happening. To the Egyptians, everything was a God. Everything was a God to the Egyptians. The sun was a God, the moon was a God, the sky was a God, the land was a God, the Nile River was a God, Pharaoh was a God, everything was a God. This makes a lot of sense then out of the question that Moses assumes the Israelites will ask him in Exodus chapter three. Moses said to God, this is at the burning bush, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. And Moses needed this answer to their question because they would wonder which God was coming to rescue them. Who is it? 
Which of the gods? One of the Egyptian gods? A god from somewhere else? Which god is it? Don't we see their idolatrous unbelief when very soon after all of those miracles and the crossing of the Red Sea, they get a little hungry and they're like, forget this. Forget this plan. Forget this God. Let's just go back to Egypt. We're comfortable there. How about when they make a golden calf, which is an Egyptian-like statue, and say that it represents God? Hey, we know about this. This is what we need. We need a statue, the bull, just like we used to worship. We need that now. And then later when they worship Baal at Peor with the Moabites, these people were idolaters. With a realistic, rather than an idealistic view of the Israelites, we can ask questions about what the Egyptians believed about creation to give us some context about what the Israelites might have believed prior to Moses writing God's word for them. And there are fascinating uh, and very detailed studies about this, this very subject of what, what did the ancient peoples believe? And we have that written down in some different ways. Uh, and they're not in agreement across that, but there, there are Egyptian narratives about, about how, how did we get here? And there are uh, ancient Babylonian and other uh, things written down. How did we get here? And they don't agree with each other. They don't agree in their own systems. But I want to give you a brief preview summary from one book that I read talking about what did the Egyptians believe? And it, it, this is a quote from this book. Uh, Before the beginning of creation, there was only an infinite, dark, watery, chaotic sea. There was nothing above the sea or below the sea. The sea was all there was. Immersed in the sea, Atum, the creator God and source of everything, brought himself into existence by separating himself from the waters. In many accounts, Atum spoke the universe into existence And then the universe began with the separation of the waters to create the atmosphere. So the waters separate, and now you have a bubble of air, and that bubble was known as the god Shu, in the midst of this endless mass of water. A tomb's command separated the surface of the waters into the sky, which was a god, from the earth, which was a god. The waters receded, and the first mound of earth appeared. The sun which was a god, already in the waters, which is another god, before the separation of the atmosphere, the sun rose out of the water for the first time as the main event of creation. And so the basic universe was formed, a bubble of light, air, earth, and sky in the continuing infinity of dark, motionless water. Hopefully you know Genesis 1 well enough to be able to see both some overlap and a lot of really important differences between these accounts between how the Egyptians conceived of creation and how Moses wrote of creation. But here's the point. Genesis was written in that context, first intended to oppose and confront that wrong worldview. Where they had been told, and I think many of them believed, for centuries, yeah, it was something like that. And Moses is writing to be like, this is so wrong. Let me tell you, let me, let me refocus your attention. But how did he do that? And the point being made by this third way of interpreting Genesis 1 is that God did not necessarily correct every one of the Israelites' misconceptions about the nature of the physical world. Instead, what if he took how they misunderstood things, but how they understood things, as the language that he would use to correct their most significant theological misunderstandings. 
In other words, what if God had Moses write in a, in a way that accommodated their misunderstandings to correct their theology? Using terminology and phrases and ideas that they already believed, using those as a starting point to correct the significant theological misunderstandings that they have. Maybe this idea of accommodation sounds new or a bit off, so I want to take some time to explain that. Here's an example of, of being accommodating when it comes to communicating truth. Imagine a five-year-old asks you where babies come from. How much detail are you going to provide for someone at that level of maturity, immaturity? Will you be provided in, in detail? Maybe you will. God bless you if you do. Let me know how that goes. Or will you some, seek to communicate the truth in words and with concepts that they can understand? Are you going to talk about mommy's uterus or are you going to talk about mommy's belly? And I highly doubt the word conception is going to come up, let alone the process that leads to conception. Didn't in our conversations with five-year-olds. We naturally accommodate truth to the understanding of the people that we are talking to. And this is not the same as lying to them. Giving a simplified explanation to a five-year-old is different than lying and just saying that the stork dropped it off. And that's not what we're talking about with accommodating ideas to correct misunderstandings. God does not lie, but does he accommodate? Well, do we have any other examples of God accommodating an idolatrous people in this way that may help us understand Genesis 1 a little differently and a little better? I think we do have an example of that. In Acts chapter 17, Paul visits Athens, it's a Greek city teeming with idols. Actually, kind of what Luke says. It's like he's walking around, and the place is just full of idols, statues, altars. And here's what Paul says to those idol worshipers. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And we might think that he's being like sarcastic or insulting, but he wasn't, right? He's, he's gaining a hearing with them, and they would have been like, oh, yes. Oh, yes, we are very religious, and this is what he explains. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found an, also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. We read aspects of the Ten Commandments today. Whatever this altar was and whatever name was written on it, it was blasphemy. It was idolatry. They weren't worshiping the one true and living God. They were just like, in case we missed anybody. We've got a whole pantheon, but just in case... The other guy. And we have an altar and we offer sacrifices. Wouldn't have been clean animals. Why would it have been? Right? But they have that. And Paul's like, ah, there's a starting point. You recognize that you don't understand everything about God. Now let me, let me take that and proceed to tell them from this idol-worshiping altar, let me take that and then tell you about the God who made the world and everything in it. And let me lead you through that to tell you about the resurrection of Jesus. What is that if not some level of accommodation to a polytheistic people? Taking something that is technically incorrect in their worship, but using it as a launching point to correct their theology and point them to the one true and living God. As a side note, is not God accommodating to us in our finite humanity by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin? How do we understand an infinite, eternal God how do we understand his perfect righteousness? We can't. So he came. He came and was born like us and he grew. And yet somehow, even growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, he never sinned. And what is God like? Jesus. 
is God. Not just like God, he is God. The incarnation of Jesus, God made human, is an accommodation for our sake. Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Communicating on our level. And at some level, I think that is what Moses is doing for the Israelites in Genesis 1. That's what this view is saying, that he's accommodating them by taking some of the language of what they already wrongly believed about creation and using it to point them toward the truth of God. And this is not the same thing as Moses lying or writing a creation myth. Just one among many. That's not what I'm saying. How much, though, of the style and words and ideas of Genesis 1 does this account for? I'm not sure. I'm not even fully convinced that this third option is definitely the correct one. But it does raise interesting questions that maybe you've never considered before. Are we even looking at Genesis 1 the right way and asking the correct questions? Or is there another way of looking at it? I think it's worth us discussing and considering aspects of that for us to better understand God's word. As we continue into Genesis, I want to lay my cards on the table so that you know where I'm coming from. Perhaps you're wondering about some of these things. Perhaps you never did until today. Perhaps you're not wondering about them, but I think they are some important points to establish. I believe that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I absolutely believe that. No question, no doubt. I believed it before I understood it because somebody else told me it. Another one of those assumptions, an assumption that I now deeply hold to be true. I also believe that the, Holy, that the Bible is without error in all that it teaches, names, dates, and doctrines, down to the details. What it says is true, is true, no mistakes, no error. I also believe that the Bible is sufficient for humanity in any and every age, culture, language, to know and trust Christ alone for salvation from God's punishment for their sin. I've said this before, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. There is a difference between the Bible being sufficient truth and the Bible being exhaustive truth. In other words, the Bible is sufficient for everything we need to know about God, humanity, sin, Christ, salvation. It is sufficient for everything we need to know. It is not exhaustive regarding everything that we want to know. Kids, if you have a geometry test this week, you should read your Bible that morning, but it won't help you know your theorems. That's not what the Bible's for. Uh, in the same way, if your car breaks down, you should pray and you should read your Bible and then you should call your mechanic. Who you probably don't care if he's literate as long as he knows what your engine is supposed to do. The Bible doesn't teach us about auto mechanics because it's not exhaustive truth about everything that we want to know about everything, but it is sufficient truth for everything that we need to know. And in my mind, this is incredibly relevant for our approach to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 does not answer every question posed by every culture or worldview. No matter what your interpretation position is regarding Genesis 1 and what it means to take it literally, what a word, literally, ugh, I would literally love to remove the word literally from discussions about the Bible and life in general. Because literally doesn't even mean literally anymore. We've talked about that before. One of my non-theological pet peeves. And even a literal understanding. Did Jesus literally say and mean he's a door? It's like, well, he literally said that and he literally meant it as a figurative expression. 
But Jesus isn't a door. Right? Sufficient, but not exhaustive. This is not diminutive or diminishing God's word. Genesis 1 does not answer every question that we would come to, and no matter what your position and what it means to take it literally, not every one of your questions is answered. The most important questions are answered. And here's what's more important than that. Not, not only does it not answer every question posed to it by every culture, every worldview, every language, not only does it not answer every question, that's not the most important thing, though. Do you know what it does do? It does confront every worldview of every language, of every culture, past, present, and future. If Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and sure, let's just keep going. But if Genesis 1 through 3 specifically, if that, those passages, those chapters, if they do not serve as a foundation for your worldview, your worldview is wrong. It's the foundation of Scripture. It's the foundation of the universe because it's the foundational truths given to us by God. So if you disagree <laughs> or you're like, ah, I don't need to account for that, like your worldview's off. These chapters really are that important. I believe also that God governs the universe by providence, but he is always free to intervene in creation through miracles. And throughout scripture, we frequently see him doing both of those things, right? The rain falls from the clouds. Animals live and die and are fed, right? All these different things, they happen through God's control. But there is a difference between providence and miracles. And mistakenly, some Christians speak of every action that God takes as miraculous. And that's not correct. Really rather narrow-minded and, and very unhelpful, I think. Because it actually, if everything's a miracle, it actually reduces what real miracles are. Your heart is beating right now. Let me just make sure. Some of you look like you're dead, but I think you're just sleeping. No. Your heart is beating right now because of God's sovereign care, but it is not miraculous. It is not a miracle that your heart is beating. That is the normal, ordinary workings of life in the universe that God made and governs. And that's not to say that God's not involved in it, but he's not involved miraculously. As if his power has to make sure that it keeps happening. Right? He's not hands-off and gone but it's the control and rule of a sovereign providence. A miracle is different than that. A miracle is a supernatural invention from God's hand, a break from the normal, ordinary course of things. Because water does not normally turn into blood, but it did in Exodus 7. Fireballs don't normally fall from heaven and consume soaking wet altars, but it did in 1 Kings chapter 18. Giant fish don't normally swallow people who then stay alive for three days in the depths of the ocean. Humans normally only walk on water when it's frozen. The blind don't see, the deaf don't hear, and the dead aren't raised normally. But when God intervened, all of those miraculously happened. You see the difference? Right? There's the ordinary course of hairs. Right? Your hairs fall, God knows. He's in control of it, but he's not plucking it actively. I don't think he did, brother. I don't know. That's just what happens. The bird falls. It's in God's care, but God didn't have to knock it down. 
It fell and he ruled over that. There's a difference between providence and miracle. And when it comes to Christians seeking to understand the creation story, it's easy for us to think that God only gets the credit if everything happened miraculously and immediately. That's the only way that God works, the only way that he gets credit, and the only way that he gets glory. And I don't think that that's necessary. Some Christians think that the text requires that, and some think that it doesn't. Those who would say, no, I don't think that the text requires that, still Christians would look at the text and be like, I don't think that it requires that, still see God gloriously working through processes that he controlled over ridiculously long periods of time. Here's the point. For the most part, I don't think that we're disagreeing about what God could do but rather what God did do. Do you see the difference? Are we accusing people who think God did something different and being like, well, you think he couldn't have, what, is he not omnipotent? Could he not have accomplished it in that way? Like, right, whatever your position is, you do recognize, like, it didn't actually take him six days to do it, right? It didn't have to. Like, God could have just been like, boom, not even finger snap, right? Word. (laughs) Like, existence. And then it's just like, boom, there it is. One, one day. So it's just like, it took longer than necessary. And some will be like, and it took longer than it seems with that first reading from our own presuppositions and assumptions about the text, what God could do and what God did do are different questions. And if we mix up the two and then accuse those who disagree with us about what God did do, if we accuse them of doubting God's power or his words, I think we're making a mistake. Is God glorified through, this is the question I have for you then, not just from Genesis 1, but from everything. Is God glorified through his normal rule of providence or is he glorified through his extraordinary rule of miracles? And that's a fallacy because it's not one or the other. It is both, right? God did not create you in the same way that he created Adam, but he did create you, right? God did not create however many years ago, uh, golden doodles or whatever the newest version of that is. He didn't create it then, but he did create it, right? His sovereign activity and creative power is acts of knit you together in your mother's womb. Did that for the prophet, did that for you, right? God created you, but he didn't have to form you from the dust of the ground in order to do that. God works by providence and miracles. And finally, I believe in a young earth and a young universe created with apparent age. Because I think that is what makes the most sense of the text. But as I hope is fairly obvious, I am not going to be so dogmatic about the interpretation, that one interpretation of this passage that I refused to grant Christian fellowship to those who hold a different interpretation. Kind of the whole point of this is just asking, how dogmatic do we have to be? And what are the bounds of Christian fellowship that we have? Is there another way of legitimately holding to the sovereignty of God and the truth of God's word and looking at it differently? I say that there is, even though I don't hold to that different position. I would rather listen and learn from them as a fellow Holy Spirit taught Christ follower than to stubbornly and arrogantly close my ears because I think I already have all the answers. I hope that you are willing to do the same. God is creator. That's non-negotiable. But does that answer all of our questions? 
Because it seems to me that most Christians over the last 50 to 60 years, because it really is about only that long, maybe 70, most Christians over the last 50 or 60 years have been concerned, most concerned about Genesis 1 answering the questions when, young or old, and how, direct creation or guided processes. Those are the questions that most people today seem to be interested in. That's the first thing that they want answered when it comes to this, and they don't want to really talk about much else. Those are good questions for us to consider, when and how. I do not think that they are the most important questions. And as you look at the rest of Scripture, that constantly, and I want, I, if I'd had the time to read through the entire Bible or figure out the search parameters, I think almost all of the authors of Scripture, everywhere, in every genre, definitely in every genre, point back to this fact that God is a creator. But it doesn't often point back to these when and how questions. Here are what I found through the rest of the Bible to definitely be the most important questions. I'll even answer them for you. Who? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a tomb. There wasn't water that already just sort of floated around, right? It wasn't Allah. It didn't have to do with turtles. It wasn't a chameleon. It wasn't hippopotamuses, battling each other in some abyss, right? It didn't come from aliens and it didn't come from nothing. It came from God. That's the who of creation. God. Also, scripture does speak clearly about the what of creation. I like Hebrews 11.3 for this. By faith in God and in his word, by faith we understand the universe, everything, was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It wasn't some pre-existing material that like existed alongside of God or that God somehow separated himself from or crawled out of, and he's like, well, I could do something with this. That's not what happened, right? There was God and nothing else, and then God made stuff, and then he did something with it. And unless there's another precursor sermon that I haven't even thought of yet, we'll actually get to that next week. Finally get to Genesis. I don't know who's making this preaching schedule. It's, it's me. What happened? God. God created. Created everything out of nothing. Everything that exists only exists for that very reason. And here's what it gets to, though. Why? Why did God create? Remember, it wasn't out of need. We talked about that last week. It wasn't out of loneliness. It wasn't out of boredom. It wasn't even necessary, really. I mean, it wasn't something that he had to do for any reason apart from his own reasons, right? There's not, there was nothing else to put a constraint on him. Hey, God, you have to. Like, only God. <laughs> Nobody outside speaking to that. So why? Why did God create the heavens and the earth in the beginning? Romans 11, verse 36, points us to that. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be what? Glory forever. I, can you, I'm not going to get the word right. I'll try anyway, right? It's like a flex. Is that, that a thing, right? Isn't that, is that a thing, right? It's like, because, because he 
because he could. He's kind of like, I want to show off how, ama- how amazing I am. Like, well, to who? There's nobody else. Well, I'll create an audience then. It'll be the universe. And then I'm going to show him. I'm going to make a place, right? One little insignificant place in the midst of everything else because I can. I'm going to fill it with all sorts of stuff that don't really seem to matter to the story. And then I'm going to create people. And they're going to reflect my image. And they're going to mess up terribly. The one thing that should be aligned with my rule is actually going to rebel against my rule. And I should destroy them for that, but I'm not going to because I am eternally merciful and gracious. And so I'm going to create a scenario in my sovereign power to display my mercy and to display my holiness and to display my justice and righteousness. And I'm going to work it all out. Why? Because I'm glorious? For his own glory. Because he wanted to, and he could, and it was a display of what he could do. God created the universe as a stage for the display of his glory. Calvin wrote something similar to that. And his glorious design and his glorious power, and most significantly, I think, his glorious grace in the redemption of his sinful people through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the stage. That's the purpose of the universe, God's glory to be displayed. So if we walk away from Genesis 1, or we walk away from any other part of Scripture, not marveling at the glory of the God who made it and is working, then we have most certainly missed the point. God, I'm thankful that you are are glorious, regardless of what human eyes see, but we do want to glorify you. Um, Thank you for your glorious grace being poured out on us. Thank you for your glory displayed in Jesus. Thank you for your glory displayed in creation. Thank you that you know everything. Teach us the humility that we know far less than, than we think. Help us to walk in a persistent humility as we approach your word that we would always be learners, humble learners to receive grace from you rather than, than arrogant because you resist the proud. Humble me please, and glorify yourself. Amen.